everyone, welcome to From Nor to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy at Genesee Community College. Once upon a time, from a diminutive Aesop's fable to an epic like War and Peace, humans continually tell stories. And it's not just writers and artists, but each one of us every day. What do these stories tell us about ourselves? Not just the content of the stories, but the actual practice of storytelling. Is it just how human cognition has developed to relay information? Or is something deeper happening beneath the surface? Once upon a time, two guys started a podcast to try and answer those questions. <laughs> so, I, storytelling. Um, we'll try to cover a few different things here from um, you know, the actual why do we do it mm-hmm. to the content of the stories to how um, both of those things kind of affect um, how it shapes our reality, mm-hmm. our shared reality. So what is a story? What What is a story? What's a story? And, and, and what is a narrative? I, I was, well, you said once upon a time. It's essentially a casting of an experience, real or imagined, into uh, a recognizable form uh, that allows for embellishment and that that puts a structure to something that may have, in the experience of it, seemed unstructured. So that's pretty important, right? Because right off the bat, we're not saying that this is an honest, accurate depiction or description of an event or of anything. And it's, it may be honest. It may right, be very right. honest. It may not ne- be absolutely accurate. That's not necessary, though. Right. That's not necessary to <clears throat> no, no. the act of storytelling. No. Um, so we have a narrative um, with a plot yeah. and events that are, are told in, a, in sort of a specific sequence for a certain reason, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Within that, we have, like you were saying, um, it it can be accurate. It can be, if we were to recount um, the events of World War II, would that be telling a story? Yes, that that would be telling a story. Um, now you can do you can do the historical story, which itself is going to be incomplete. No, no history is ever absolutely complete because we keep finding out more things and so the story uh changes and we need to change with it um and then they, the whole thing about accuracy and authenticity a story can be authentic and psychologically accurate while being totally made up mm. uh, a story can teach something about the truth of humanity and <clears throat> be about um, things in a galaxy far far away it's uh so the accuracy is in how much it resonates with what we think about ourselves or how much it shocks us to find out something that we know internally really is true about ourselves that we don't necessarily want to face. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's psychologically, emotionally um, engaging and accurate, but it doesn't have to be necessarily um, factually and so that's interesting. I, 
I was watching something the other day. I can't remember what it was, but somebody was talking about how um, artists use... Uh, oh, it's it V for Vendetta. Huh. Artists use lies to tell the truth and politicians use the truth to... Uh, right, right. Yes, and yeah. so you think about that and that kind of makes sense right um i mentioned in the intro aesop's fables i i really love them <laughs> and i think there's some sort of connotation that they're for children did, did they originally start out for children or were they just kind of um they they were they were fashioned for children as i understand it but but based on on stories that that adults told i mean adults ultimately adults wove the tales and and they and so they were taking something from themselves. Now, this is going to be a real leap, and I don't mean it to be equivalent. It's, there's no equivalency. But think of a cartoon like uh, the old cartoons of uh, Roadrunner mm. uh, or, or Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck. There was an entire adult element the kids didn't. Right. There was all kinds of punning going on the kids weren't necessarily picking up on it all to keep the adults entertained and involved. Uh, I think there's, there is some of that in Aesop, but there's also, um, uh, this may not be the time to get to it, but I'm just going to fling it in there so we can come back to it. Um, this is where for me, Plato is, it is one of his most egregious, um, shame on you levels because in, in his Republic, when he's, and you've you've read uh, when he when he's shaping uh, suggesting the curriculum through dialogue for this great republic, he is wary of the power of stories, and so he's insistent that there mustn't be stories told that could cause uh, children uh, uh, in, uh, being educated to question the republic. Mm. From there to to. 2020, the leap just happens. Uh, so, so stories are fashioned by adults to guide children, but sometimes to guide children in the way the adults want them to be. And right, right. And I think that that's that's a big aspect of the Aesop's Fables as well. Is that um, there's story? I guess there's stories that are meant for children, but the content of them is basically teaching a child how to be an adult. So there, there are things that apply to adults, but there are things that by the time you reach adulthood, you already know because your childhood has been integrated with this, these principles. Yeah. Yeah. So you say that, um, it, the Republic is, um, egregious for suggesting that children be wary of stories and make them question. Looking at it politically, that might not necessarily be an egregious thing. Is it an egregious from a moral standpoint, perhaps, but from a, an order standpoint, oh, from, from a continuation the, yeah. of the Republic? Absolutely, from um, a which is what is what he talks about in it early on, which is, you know, I Plato is. There's no doubt of the brilliance of of the mind that and and the creation of the form of the dialogue, based on his work with Socrates and 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 so many times people have said that Plato everything else is a footnote to Plato as a philosopher. Nonetheless, uh, I would argue, uh, well, humbly but sincerely, that Plato caused a whole lot of damage. Mm. <laughs> across millennia, <laughs> uh, and. And so, yes, it brings up that very thing. Oh, do we, I mean, Plato said in the dialogues, it was, uh, must not tell stories like the Iliad. 
Homeric epic, but you mustn't tell stories because that might give children ideas. Mm. You know, and I'm paraphrasing, but 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 the essence of it is so. That, then you then you look at the stories that we have told children far too long in our own history, which has led us to some pretty uh, important moments now mm-hmm. right. that um, did not do a service except to maintain the state as the state wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, and and really. You know, it brings up the question, can you ever stop children from asking questions? You know, and if you do, is that a desirable outcome? Um, now, the yes initial... Yes and no. Right, yes to the first one, no for the second, so go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the initial, um, you know, sort of point of view would be, you know, the, the logical jump would be, okay, well, if we stop children from asking questions then they will just continue on with the status quo and the Republic will just continue as it has. But that's, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, cause I mean, like, like we said, you, you could look at, if you stop, let's say you, you have a certain point of view, right? And you don't want your children to have any other point of view. So as a result, you keep them from, um, any other experiences, that are outside of your religion or your political viewpoint or yeah. whatever. You yeah. keep them within a very narrow framework of thinking. That's going to have one of two outcomes. Either an inquisitive child is going to say, okay, well, you're telling me these things are bad. Why are they bad? <laughs> I want to know for myself. And they're going to go out and they're yep. going to explore. Yep. The other outcome would be the child is going to just wholeheartedly accept your viewpoint Mm -hmm. and then be completely unopen to new experience, new evidence and things that could be correct that would change their viewpoint and instead follow a, a fallacy, you know, which, which, which gains resonance and power from year to year to year into the child who becomes the adult. Um, and there, there then becomes blinded to the very truth of that the story is trying to negate. Now that we've, got, we've, and I know we've gone all serious, but stories are serious. There's nothing, and and that's why I go back to Plato with this. When you have the master philosopher trying to shape what would be a utopia and saying there's nothing more powerful than stories. So we have to control those stories. Mm. Um, I think that itself is a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it, it, it it has those elements of what what makes great stories. You know, you have here's this wise, um, trend setting philosopher who has a one fatal flaw that sort of sets the course of history going in a direction that's different and then causes whole civilizations to, you know, result in different ways. It is yeah. a story. You know? it, 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 <laughs> and I mean, that's a story that resonates in the fiction that we tell as well. You, you'll see that trope pop up in stories. How does a republic become an empire? Well, th- now I'm going to Star Wars. Okay, right. fine. Now it's a TM, Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> If Plato is, is, is designing the Republic to be the kind of thing that we have, are living, really, as a democratic Republic in many ways, uh, not exactly, but, but patriarchal and uh, the, the, the proto-imperialistic, at least, um, and um, uh, elitist, uh, class-oriented, uh, it does it's not too far of a step from that kind of system 
into an empire, into a fascistic um, event, and and so that that story is 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 a very potent one. And most of the stories we tell are, why do we read to be entertained? Right? Um, uh, stories are. I mean, there's this whole other element, and, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to hijack this, Joel, so you just tell me to back up. We're not there. I, I, but but I'm, I'm most excited about this topic. Uh, um, there's the idea of, people have talked about it, the, uh, the evolutionary value. Mm-hmm. Um, is storytelling uh, maladaptive? Uh, you know, sugar was good in small amounts because it kept people propelled back when they uh, <laughs> needed to be propelled, depending on what was chasing them. Um, but now we, we overdo it. Uh, there are those who argue that stories were maladaptive, but mostly I think uh, philosophers are, uh, uh, and storytellers certainly argue that that stories are precisely have an evolutionary value because they they help us rethink what we are to stay fresh, to stay awake, to stay attentive, to wonder. Uh, some of the things we've talked about in other uh, podcasts. And so I think they have very much an evolutionary value. And, and that's why I find storytelling. See, the, the, I, I get excited about this because all of you in my life who are artists, uh, you know, uh, my son, my daughter, uh, who's a puppeteer, actor, you who are a singer, painter, my, my daughter-in-law, who is an art teacher and an artist and, uh, and, and many media, uh, all of you, all of us, I mean, I, I, right, we all tell stories, but all of you who find that the core of, of, of one's necessary being is more than just doing work and going home, going to the grocery store and, and going through the rituals. Um, the deeper ritual is the storytelling. So we watch something or we read something and we say, oh, well, that was fluff. That was entertaining. Yeah, but that re-energized us. It relaxed us. It gave us... It let us just let go for a while. But even within that fluff, sometimes we find very useful um, pieces that stay with us, whether you call it tropes or memes or, or symbols or a theme that we keep returning to. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we have, we have stories about the, the exact thing that you were just talking about. Everybody knows the story of, of the ant and the grasshopper, right? Mm. So during summer, the grasshopper is just playing his fiddle and singing, having a good time while the ant's working hard. And then winter comes along and the grasshopper doesn't have any food. So the ant, you know, well, what's that story about? The story is telling you, oh, well, you know, it's good to, you know, be a, a productive working member of society. Mm-hmm. That's the message of that story. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not, I'm not trying to say that that story is completely without any value you know obviously it is good to work it's good to be a contributing member of society yeah um but that story has one very specific message that it's sending Mm -hmm. and anytime you have a a singular sort of um message or viewpoint like that it has the potential to be dangerous. Right? It does. You are, are right. It's a monocular kind of message because, because latent within that wonderful piece, but latent within it, and this is why we have to question it, is the idea that people who play music, who dance, who sing and find joy in life aren't contributing. So the deeper messages, those artists, they just aren't productive members of society. Well, what do we do in society? The first thing we lop off when there are budgetary concerns are the 
what the schools call extras. <laughs> the very fact of calling it an extra is is indicative of of how um, the organized social structure doesn't value. And yet, underneath, there's a story that is. Here's a story. My my daughter, actor, puppeteer, wondrous soul. And yes, I'm a, her dad, but I've seen her work. I, but she, but when when she was um, auditioning for theater schools, she we we were on a flight and we were sitting in different chairs, uh, seats. And and now I'm telling this from memory, so I know I'm maybe altering some some details. I, I don't remember which seat it was. I don't remember how far back. That doesn't matter. She's sitting next to a, a, a business person who asks her a question, a nondescript question, what a well, the high, um, what, are you, what are you doing flying? And, or, and she talked about theater. Well, I wouldn't let my, my daughter go into that. There's nothing productive in that. And she laughed because she said, she put her headsets on, and she just sat back and said, fine. But she glanced over. He flips open his laptop. He starts watching a movie. He eschews the idea of art as having any value or importance, and the first thing he does is go to entertainment. Mm. You know, so there's that that story of the ant and the grasshopper to me reveals a hypocrisy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and and you know, and and the ant and the grasshopper is a um, it's sort of a it's more the outlier than anything else. Anyways, mm -hmm. most of the stories that you do encounter are extolling the um the value of being artistic or not following the crowd or doing these things yeah. most stories are not about yeah you should just be an industrious cog in the machine of right, the right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the typical story you know lots of times it is about you know oh well thinking for yourself being smart you look at most of the aesop fables it's a it's it's about being outside of that more. Sure, or being helpful to others. Right, you know, the, yeah. the, the mouse and the lion and the thorn mm -hmm. and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, what what sort of elements define a story? What what things do you... What makes a story... Um, what makes it different from a description? <laughs> That's a brilliant question. And, and I, I'm hesitating only because Anything one says is going to be far too abbreviated, but so we'll offer this. We'll start with this and we'll shape it together. Um, what makes it different than a description is that you have at least a character, hmm. a character being a being, not necessarily human, <laughs> could be a grasshopper, could be a planet, <laughs> um, but, but, but a being uh, experiencing something that causes whether internal or external uh, conflict, introspection, reflection, uh, a range of emotions of some kind, uh, and uh, a taking of an action or a refusal to take an action, which leads to a result. Now, there's short, 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 short fiction. It's called sudden fiction, and sometimes these are stories in a paragraph or two. This became very popular in the late 80s and it's still out there. Flash fiction, it's also called. And so sometimes you have something, a very brief narrative that doesn't end. But you see that there is movement. Mm. 
Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to test my this description against of the. Okay, so Bartleby the Scrivener. Uh, you, you're familiar mm-hmm. with it, right? Right. So here's that Clark in in a British firm, and he just stops working. He stops doing anything. He just stays at his desk. Which uh, time to go home? I would prefer not to. Time to eat? I'd prefer not to. It's all about somebody taking no action, right, <laughs> and flummoxing everyone else around him. So yeah, I think there has to be a character, whatever that being is, um, and some kind of conflict, which may or may not be resolved, and some kind of motion either in the character or in other people, other beings that are interacting with that character. Okay. So how important is point of view to a story? Desperately. <laughs> Desperately important. Don't you think? Yeah, well, because that's, that's what I'm thinking is, you know, if I'm thinking about a description versus a story, I'm thinking that might be the one uh, that might be the the thing that sets them apart the most because in a description i don't know if you could call it a character but you know i i could describe somebody Mm -hmm. okay well they're this tall a character sketch right yeah yeah yeah. they're this tall they weigh this much they have this color hair this color eyes whatever yeah that's not a story but it's a description there's a character right um as well as do you well do you think you can describe um do you think you can have events you can describe events without it being a story. Oh, that's a that's lovely questions. I, 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 events are stories. Yeah, you see, I I think that I don't think you can because yeah. if you're describing events, you're describing events from your point of view, and I think that it's the point of view that makes it a story. Yes. Let's say you had a. Um, some we have a fictional machine, right? And this machine can curve with 100% accuracy describe an event. I don't think that event would necessarily be a story. That if that would be a description of an event. But if a human being decides to describe the events, that coloring is what makes it into a story, I think. That's really interesting because there's a lot of debate about this now. There's the artificial intelligence whether the, I don't remember where I was reading it recently, but uh, but um actually trying to get a machine to pull together um, uh, randomized uh, elements to, into telling a story. Uh, I, I, I don't know how that's working. I don't remember. Science fiction has dealt with that many times. But is it less a story if a machine tells it? I don't know. Right. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, this is this is the question of our age. And by our age, I mean probably of this five or ten years because i'm sure it'll be <laughs> here we go i think it'll be locking ourselves in again <laughs> with the way that with how quickly technology is advancing i'm yeah. sure it will be answered mm-hmm. in short order but at this point in time it does seem like that is the big question in philosophy is you know as a i take a lot of interest in it as a musician or you know as a writer that sort of mm-hmm. thing you know if if you put a hundred van goghs into a machine and tell it to make a van gogh is it a van gogh if you give a computer, you know, the 1,000 greatest works of literature of all time, you tell it to write a book, is it a story? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you give a computer the top, you know, 100 number number one hits in music and you tell it to write a song, 
Is it a song? Yeah, well, but, it? but 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 this is the essence of influence, and you just and this is this pulls some of this together. What you just described, and what you said before about the human coloring the situation. I mean, there's how many times have we heard that there's no new stories under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Well. Uh, clearly, there are new things all the time that we're finding that we didn't know were there, like life forms. But uh, let's just, so let's assume the ultimate view that uh, there is something out there that knows everything that exists. So for that something, there's nothing new under the sun. That's something that would, would therefore have a hard time making up a brand new tale, perhaps. Um, but if I'm, when I read a set of of, of pieces of work. Uh, right, I, you know, I, I, I was talking to a friend yesterday um, who is going to send me. He's he's working on a fantasy story. You're working on a fantasy story, uh, which you're, you're going to let me read. Uh, one, one of my older friends, uh, she has been working on novels and short stories for years, and letting me letting me read them, and, and she's beginning to send them out, and, and I sort of have a, 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 come out commenting editorial privilege. Um, it is a privilege. Um, I have a friend in Mexico who moved there with her husband uh, because of the conditions here and was a teacher, and he's an IT person. And and she's writing her memoir in prose poetry, and she's asking me to read it and comment on the chapters. So I'm reading, uh, and a, a, another former student who who's sending me comic work um, and and reading these things. So I've got all this in my head. So if I start writing something um, in poetic form that says something about my life that I want to leave to my children, am I just imitating my friend from Mexico? Uh, if, if, if I start writing a fantasy story, um, am I somehow totally ignoring what Tolkien has taught me or C.S. Lewis or whomever? No, no, it's in there. So I think it might be... Um, what species is <laughs> if there's an AI that that can uh, have input on many different pieces and then say, okay, I'm going to be original because I'm going to pull elements from these. Uh, in Star Trek, Lieutenant Data in Star Trek The Next Generation had this very problem. He's trying to be original with a painting. And he studied all the other paintings that there were, and he was, and he, and I remember there was an episode where he's, he's talking about, well, I have this influence and this influence and this influence. So he's categorizing influences rather than doing something from himself. So if all you say is that, oh, well, I have this, I have this, I have, that. I have Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL in my head when I'm writing a, a movie soundtrack. I have, I have uh, James Horner and um, and name three of uh, three other people. So I can say this is my element from uh, Zimmer and this is my element from Horner and 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 then I'm really not necessarily I'm concentrating on trying to be like them rather than. Yeah, and that's that's the big question. And we talked about this in our episode on, on creativity. Yes, yes. and um, that's that's really what it comes down to is you do have these influences, um, and you're going to use them, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that it's not it's not true art. Correct. Um, but yeah, I think it's the I think what we referenced in that episode was it's the it's the conchi, the consciousness of the the effort if you're sitting there actually thinking about how you're going to to do these different things um 
you're going to have a much harder time creating something than as if you let that just flow subconsciously. And I, I brought up an actual study that had been done with jazz musicians versus amateur musicians mm -hmm. and how they're utilizing the different sections of their brain to create things. Um, they're both creating things, um, but one is using focused attention to draw on influences, whereas the other one is drawing on those influences without knowing it. And that person is the expert. Is it, yes. It's the amateur who is consciously thinking, oh, okay, so this is my favorite artist. These are my favorite artists. How am I going to use the parts that I like about what they're doing to make something? Rather the expert than is just somebody that says, I'm just going to do something. And those influences will come out subconsciously, but they don't know that they're doing it. They're just deciding to do something. Exactly. So let's, let's, <clears throat> you decide you like The Hobbit as a story. And I, you know, I've had young students, I remember when I was teaching junior and senior high school, sometimes would first they do the thing you described before. They're trying to write a story. And what the first paragraph is, is a complete description of the character. Mm. Uh, uh, Eleanor is five feet six. She weighs 125. And you're chuckling in your side saying, sweetie, that's not a story. You've got the character. What are you going to do with Eleanor? Um, but you, suppose, so you say, well, I've come up with a story. And uh, it's about this, this, this short creature. He has very, very big hands. The hands are extra hairy. Um, and the creature lives in, in a place called the distant village, which is away from the rest of the, the world. But there is a very bad wizard who wants to take over every place, even the distant village, which doesn't believe it can ever be touched. And I'd be sitting there saying, oh, the hobbit. Right. <laughs> um, so, so there's that. And, and one can learn from telling. I mean, storytellers, storytellers, um, oral storytellers particularly, retell stories. But they make them fresh. Mm -hmm. uh, so perhaps they add details. Perhaps they take a different point of view, which is uh, there's a, a, a so many writers, but a, a woman named uh, Tanith Lee and uh, uh, Jane Yolen, uh, who for many decades, well, Jane, Jane Yolen I think still is writing, but they they would take uh, a story like Cinderella and turn it upside down. Or you take a fan fiction and somebody's writing a story from the viewpoint of Darth Vader. And you take the theater notion that no villain thinks he's a villain. Mm. He thinks he's doing the right things and he's very troubled by the thing, but he, he, he thinks he's right. Well, that's a fresh take on an old character and therefore contributes to the ongoing nature of storytelling. Right. So, reining us all the way back in to our point of view <laughs> question and uh, whether or not an, an AI could, you know, is, is actually telling a story or not. I think, uh, you know, thinking about it in, in, as an analogy, you know, an AI is kind of like taking pieces of different cars and putting them together to make a new car. Whereas a human is probably taking a piece of a car and, and fabricating it into something different and then putting together... They're, they're both putting, they're all both making new cars, but one's making it out of pieces that already existed. And one is making something kind of new out of, out of influences. They're taking something like this. I think that I could use this as something else and mm -hmm. then making it, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
are they both telling stories? Yeah, yeah, I guess that they both they both probably are. Um, yeah. So, can an AI, AI write a song or a story or paint a painting? Yes, yeah, it can do those things. Will um, it have power? That's up to us to decide as we mm -hmm. as we encounter it. Yeah, yeah. I was reading um, an article last week about a guy who was using AI to write a science fiction story, mm. and what he had done was exactly that. He'd taken the top, I, I think it was hundred science fiction stories, fed it into the AI. The AI spat out a bunch of word clouds. So some words are bigger than others, depending on their importance or their, you know, how often they're used, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, and then he was writing a story based off of the AI telling him how many adjectives to use, how many, mm -hmm. all these are, what the word count should be, all these different parameters. All parceled out into right. data metrics. Yeah. And then, you know. And what the author said is when he got done writing the story, now obviously this is a collaboration between a computer and a human. Yeah. So it's not the AI story, but it's the AI informing the story. And, um, you know, his his results kind of um, support what we're saying, which is that the AI story, um, both the, the big message behind the story was very, um, very... Uh, concurrent with the big science fiction stories, mm -hmm. but it also had twists in there that you that you wouldn't have expected. So you know it was its its own thing, mm -hmm. but it was obviously drawing on the influences um, that yeah. had been fed into it. And so that, I think I think the the question we're partly getting at, staying reined in, is. The essence of, of the, well, first, we want to believe that humans are superior to, to machines. Okay. Um, we'll deal with that sometime. But the, but the, the essence of it is, can it touch us? Can it tell us something about the world or us? Can it make us think something fresh? Can it make us feel uh, again? And we may be so inured to some particular problem, so shielded, so calloused, that we can't ever be touched by something. And then we read an individual narrative, and we say, oh, my gods, this is really how it is, and I've just not been paying attention. Which is kind of what's happening with the the protests the black lives matter those things today where we're saying look at our history stare it in the face our stories of who we have been as a people mm. for 400 years <laughs> what are those stories really saying and 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 good writers and good speakers and good storytellers now are really putting that in front of us they're not saying okay go you people go away now it's our turn they're saying we are together we have been together deal with the fact that we are all human that is a grand story right and it should be opening people's eyes to the fact that your history class is not a description of events it is a story yes because what you're finding is all of these um all of these historical accounts that are coming out that you've never heard of and you didn't hear of them because they weren't written down because they're not history or they you didn't hear of them because the story that you were being told in your mainstream curriculum those accounts are not part of the story that's being told <laughs> um which 
or they're written down, but they're suppressed. Right. Uh, and and so yes, you're, it, it, it is about story, and it's about determining whether or not you can, you have the fortitude and the f- and the flexibility and the honesty to be able to take that story in. Uh, contextualize it with your own life and say, yep, okay. That doesn't mean I have to be in anguish every moment. It doesn't mean that I have to reject the sum total of everything that I as an individual am. That's not what stories ask us to do. They ask us to rethink ourselves in light of fresh and powerful information and Consider how we're treating other people. That's what Aesop is often about, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. How are we treating other people around other characters? Peter Rabbit. <laughs> so how we're treating people. Winnie the Pooh. How are we treating the world around us? How are we approaching the world around us? Yeah. <laughs> That's what story does. Right. So what I think what we're finding from the past, you know, 20 minutes of conversation is that point of view is a really powerful part oh, yes. of the story. Oh, yes. And I think the other important part is what you just mentioned is, is um, synthesis, meaning synthesis, right? So it's not, you don't just take a, you don't hear a story and then take that as fact and, and make it something, right? You, there's the synthesis. You, you hear the story, you try to figure out what message is being told you look at what things you've learned in the past, how things integrate together, what makes sense, what there is to take from it, what what there is to, you know, again, the ant and the grasshopper, right? If you hear that story and you just take it as what it is, then you think, like you said, okay, well, I'm I'm not going to play music, you know, I'm yeah. not gonna I'm yeah. not gonna have any fun. I'm gonna wake up and go to work. <laughs> I'm gonna work. Right, that's, yeah, a- <laughs> that's not that, that's not how you should you know treat stories. You know, there's there's things that you you should take away from it, and things that um maybe should be understood as uh artistic license we'll say oh yes yeah <laughs> um well, fair enough so moving on do you think stories are built into our dna do you think it's stories are part of being human i do so you think stories have existed since since the dawn of humanity i think stories have existed since hum- since the development of language i'm going to use language really loosely whether it's gestures, uh, sounds that we would ne- not necessarily be able to interpret as language because of a proto-human uh, in the evolutionary scale. I mean, I, I don't think any of us are ever going to be able to—but there's a story, isn't it? The story, the DNA tells us, is that we are all from what we call the continent of Africa. We all <laughs> came from Africa. And 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 that is a story that just some people just they wrestle against. They can't accept that, that even though the truth of the story is written into us. So yeah, that I, I think the stories are as old as we are. It's it's funny because that was my next question. After that was, can you have stories without language? <laughs> and wow. so it really depends on how you're defining language. It does. Can you have a story in a painting? Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. I, I so there, but it's the language of color, tonality, of choices, of composition. Yeah, I was reading a really interesting article um, yesterday with George Lucas, actually. <laughs> who um, he said something interesting, which was that he he um, thinks that 
cinema died with the advent of audio in movies. So, because hmm. somebody was questioning about it, uh, about his use of dialogue, which everybody knows is you know not so char- characteristically <laughs> um, characteristically campy to yeah, be yeah, to yeah. be um, yeah. generous, right? Yeah. So he has very campy dialogue, and um, they said, you know, this campy dialogue. Were you just not thinking about it much? And his answer was, "Yeah, dialogue isn't that important to me," which is. Mind blowing, right? Because <laughs> the guy won a Grammy for his screenwriting and American graffiti and stuff. But um, you know what he said was no. It, to me, it's it's about the visual and about the music. And if you think about Star Wars, without that's the what music. it is. Oh, without yeah. John Williams, there is no Star Wars. My son totally agree. There is no He's Star Wars. Without yeah, there's a, 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 no. Without, without Howard Shore. Right. He gave me a book, a marvelous book on Howard Shore, the composer who's who wrote all the music for Lord of the Rings and yes. Imagine those movies with a cantina band playing in the background. Mm. So the Hobbit walks into a place. Do, 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 do. No, it's not going to work. It's 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 not consonant with the depth. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, soundtracks. Yeah, tell so that's fascinating to me. Is that Some George Lucas's stories. idea of a good story involves no language at all? You know, it's it's more. It's you. The storytelling is in the visual and in the music more than it is in what is actually being spoken. And that, and that to me is, uh, that's, that's why I said loosely that, that the arc of a story, of course you can have mimes tell stories. You mm-hmm. can have a story without any words, but there is a recognizable set of elements. Nonetheless, there's character, there's conflict. There's something that goes awry. The silent films all back in the day, Charlie Chaplin told remarkably socially satirical stories. Um, when you talk about the cog in the machine, going back to the early, uh, did you ever see the Chaplin? I've seen uh, a couple yeah, of them, right, yeah. where he falls into a, a machine in a factory and he goes up. Well, that's telling us a story without ever saying a thing. So I think Lucas is right in that, but I would still argue that there's a, a grammar mm-hmm. uh, or a syntax of of visuals. Yeah, I think what. What makes that sort of storytelling interesting is the interpretive nature of it, right? Um, If you're watching a silent movie or looking at a a piece of art or listening to instrumental music, the story that's being told or the meaning that you're taking from it is much more introspective um, than something being imposed upon you, you know? Mm -hmm. And not to say that you can't, you can use language and still have something be that way. As a matter of fact, a lot of my music is that way. Um, the most recent single I just released, um, it's a giant wordplay, but the literal meaning of the words is is nothing. There's no, you know, if you just listen to the lyrics literally. This is the one you were describing no to me last. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So in that way, it's, it's open to interpretation. Okay, well, I'm listening. If you're somebody besides me and you're listening to the words literally, you're saying, okay, well, this doesn't mean anything. So I'm going to construct my own meaning. And I always get a huge kick out of people <laughs> attempting to, Hey, I think I know what your song is about. Okay, please tell me. Cause I want to know. And then they'll tell me, they'll say, is that right? And I'll say, I'm not going to tell you. You said, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Because you don't need to, because why do we need that verification? Mm-hmm. Because the story is not, a, a, I just read something uh, uh, last night, uh, uh, a writer who was talking about, it was in the it was in the best American poetry 2019 anthology, and the, and the editor was uh, commenting on 
poetry a story, and saying that. But poetry is not a meaning, a reverse engineered. The process of reading poetry is not a reverse engineered meaning machine, mm. uh, which is so often how it's taught. Is oh well, if you just hunt and figure out the pieces, you'll figure out what the writer is saying. Ta-da! Have a quiz, and, and right. most most of us who teach literature know that it's that's. You know, that's the simple route. It's not going to get pretty. You can learn how a poem functions. You can question what the poem is doing to you. You can ask about the word choices. Um, and you can, and you can um, uh, reflect on the poem and explore it. But you're often going to end up with more questions. Mm. But we teach people that there has to be an answer to every question, and we got to get it right. And that's so counterproductive to imagination, to creativity, or the other topic. Uh, and I think it's the same with story. That story says to me what it says to me. My friends, I know, have over the years grown, well, they find it, they chuckle. Because I'll say, oh, well, this reminds me of a Star Trek episode. It's not because I'm trying to be a Star Trek geek. It's not trying to recount all the details of an episode. It's to say, they explored the idea of whether or not humans are also aliens. Mm. And we're all alien in some way. Right. Um, and and that was a pop cultural thing. So some people say, ah, pop culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but you can have Shakespeare. You can have Terry Tempest Williams. You, you can have Tanahisi uh, Coates. Homer. It doesn't... Uh, if the story speaks... And it says something to you. This is why it's good that you do this with your music. I'm not going to tell you what it means, but please tell me what you think it means. Um, that's the process. That's mm. all that needs to happen. Right, because what's funny is that, like you said, when people approach me, they're, they're had, they have that sort of mind frame, the reverse engineering meaning making. They're trying to discover, like a detective, what is he trying mm -hmm. to say? Ah, I've got it. And then they're saying it. But what they're really doing is just engaging in their own creative process. Because I have yet to ever have anybody stumble upon the meaning of what one of my songs actually means. <laughs> but I've had dozens of different stories for the exact same songs. And why do you enjoy that process of having them tell you? Just because that's a process that I engage in. A lot of, a lot of the musical artists that I enjoy do the same thing, where... I go, man, these lyrics don't make any sense. But nobody would just write something that doesn't make any sense. It has to mean something. Hmm. And then, of course, as you become an artist, what you realize is, no, people do write things yeah, that don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, I mean, that's, that's a big question is, you know, do stories always have to have some kind of deep meaning? And to, to you, as the creator of the piece, maybe. And, and maybe even probably. But you may not even know what it is until you examine it yourself. Right. And that's that's the question that I was going to try to get at with that is, do stories always have to have deep meaning? Now, it seems like the story that I just told would say no, right? I've written songs that, you know, sometimes it's a wordplay. So it may not have a literal meaning, but if you metaphorically, like, you know, I'm, I am saying something just in word, you know, with... Uh, in an abstract way. Mm -hmm. But there are other times where I've written stuff that has no meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but the question is, does it really have no meaning or am I 
engaging in creativity and storytelling, like we talked about earlier, where there's all those influences up there. There's all of that prior knowledge. And even in the meaninglessness, there's something coming out that does have a deep meaning. I think for you, yes. I think for people who are, who are fully engaged, yes. But there are hack, hack workers. Um, here's a classic example. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I've, I've weaned myself from this. In, in the process of retirement, cleaning out my office, this incredible, here's a story, uh, a cache of of. Doc Savage novels. Now, most people don't know who Doc Savage is, but this is a pulp character fiction of, uh, from the 1930s about a group of adventurers, of course, all white and all smart and all, when you, and, 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 uh, living in New York City and just going out to save the world over and over again. Um, but all of the adventures uh, you know, I read these when I was, a, I'd stumble on them when I was a young teenager and I just kept collecting them and reading them, some of them over the years. But, you know, it becomes, it, it just becomes an exercise in, um, mindlessness, uh, an exercise in, oh, well, this is an old friend. Well, they're not so friendly anymore. You know, they're, they're, because there's nothing there. It's a, it's a stock. Here's how it, what first happens. Here's what happens next. There's a, a such a ritual to it that it's not even a ritual anymore. It just becomes tropish and, and done. And so I've I've giving all those away. I've, I've got a stack of them. I'm going to give them away to you know when people can actually stop by yard sales again and just you want to take them. If I even do that, because there are some elements of them that are so. 1930s racist embedded that I don't want young kids reading them. So I, 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 I might just toss them out below. The point of this is that there are stories that are just hack work. Writers making a living. <laughs> this is what people want. I'll crank this out again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think they, such things have deep meaning. Well, there's lots of pop cultural stuff that really doesn't. But then there's stuff that taps into the mythic or the folkloric. And I think it's that plug-in, that tapping in that makes meaning. Yeah, and it's hard to... Sometimes it's hard to find that connection. And, um, you know, for different people, it's different. You know, it's different. I Modern art museums are perfect, right? Because I think <laughs> there was that, there's that incident that happened a while back where some guy left a water bottle on the ground or something. And then everybody came by and was looking at it as, as art, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's like, so what is, what's being tabbed into, you know? And, and like you said, I, I, I agree with you, you know, some stuff, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not telling a story, you know, it's, it's doing something different, but other times there is a story to be told and you might not, you know, I might not be able to identify what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell my story. Good. And, um, this was, it's weird because this had a really profound impact on me. Like when I, when I witnessed this, I knew something really sort of perspective altering had happened without really seeing anything. Okay. So this is what happened. I went down to the track to run last week. So I'm running on the track and on the track, they have these little pole vaulting pits, you know, where you put the pole vault in to jump over something. It had rained. So the pole vault, that little pole vault pit was filled with water. And next to the pit, there's this crow and the crow has a stick in his mouth and he's 
kind of stirring in the water. <laughs> and I can see him doing this, but every time I run around to the part of the track where he is, he drops the stick, turns away from the pit, and just stands there. <laughs> and as I run past, his one eye just follows me around the track. And then once I have my back to him, he picks the stick up and continues stirring in the water. So, and, you know, I ran, I, I did two and three quarters miles that day. So that's 11 laps around the track. And every lap was exactly like that. He'd drop the stick, face away, and just follow me with his eye, then go back to doing what he's doing. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. But I, I didn't think much of it. So I, I go home. Two days later, I come to run again. And as I get on the track, I notice that the, next to the pole vaulting pit, the stick is there. And there's something else next to the stick, but the crow's gone. So I walk over to investigate. And what is next to the stick is a dead frog torn open, all of his guts missing. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Um, but it makes you wonder... Wow, what was going on there? Was was that crow hunting for the frog with the stick in the pond? And if so, like what kind of animal intelligence is that mm -hmm. showing you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of research afterwards and I found out yes, crows do eat frogs. Yes, crows do hunt frogs. And yes, crows have been noticed using using tools yes. in hunting. Yes. So I think that's what was happening is a crow was going fishing for a frog in front of me. <laughs> And on top of that, the crow, I think, was nervous that I was going to steal his meal. <laughs> so, so anytime I came around, he acted like he wasn't doing anything. There's no frog in this right, pool. <laughs> right. So it's just, it was a funny story. And it, it just is. made me think, wow, like that's, you know, what, how smart that is, you know. But yeah. the fact remains that that's my point of view of what happened. Maybe something completely did. Maybe a frog just hopped onto the track and then died of heat and then something else came along and ate it. I don't know because I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, but that's kind of the power of story, right? Is here you, here's something. Yeah. We're going to give you a couple characters and some events that happened and then a point of view and then let you decide what, what happened, what, what meaning it has to you, you know? Yeah. And that's sort of identifies, um, the that's power a great of story. story. I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was, a, that was a fun episode and that, you know, I'm sure that will it's going to inform a lot of stuff that we talk about in the future. Yeah. So until next time, keep pondering.